how sweep it is. The Yankees didn't need more cowbell. They just needed more tigers. The Bronx Bombers handled Detroit with ease in the Bronx, sweeping the three-game set. We dive into Corey Kluber's brilliance, getting to 500 and the three-game set ahead against the Astros. Our guest this week is former Yankees catcher and Princeton baseball head coach Scott Bradley. So get your week started right with a new episode of the Pinstripe Pod from the New York Post. All right, here's a Pinstripe Pod. Hello and welcome back to the Pinstripe Pod, our Yankees podcast with the New York Post. It's Chris Sheeran here with four-time World Series champion Yankees great Jeff Nelson. You can follow me on Twitter at Chris Sheeran, yes, and Nelly at NYNelly43 and Instagram at Jeff.Nelson43. You'll hear our producer Jake Brown pop in during the show. Go give us a five-star rating and write in a positive review on Apple Podcasts. We surely appreciate it. New episodes drop Mondays and Thursdays. We will be joined later in the show by former Yankees catcher and current Princeton baseball head coach Scott Bradley. But first, we bring in Jeff Nelson. And Jeff, I asked before this 11-game stretch came about for the Yankees against the Indians, Orioles, and Tigers, I asked for 9-2. and two. They went 8-3. and three. It's a game, it's a win less than I asked for, but I'll still sign for it. But here's the question that Yankee fans have to take a step back and ask themselves, were the Tigers and this stretch of 11 games snake oil, or were they smelling salts? Does this propel the Yankees, or was it just the teams they face? That's what we have to find out, Jeff. Yeah, right. You know, they have the Astros, so we're going to see how good they are. I think it's a little of both. I went to Saturday's game, and I'm watching, and I look up at the scoreboard, and 12 guys out of the 18 starters were hitting under 200, and we're talking at the end of April. And there's like, oh, the weather, you know, you try to hit a ball when it's that cold. I'm like, well, everybody has to. And if this is this is today's baseball, that you have guys hitting under 200, and they're still in the big leagues. This would have never happened 20 years ago. Uh, you know, if you're not hitting 240, you're you're going down. If you have yeah. an ERA, <laughs> at, at, you know, above four and a half, you're not even sniffing the big leagues. Now it doesn't matter. It's just the way it is. And, you know, the Yankees are supposed to beat these teams. They did. You know, they split against the Orioles, maybe a little bit of dis- disappointment, but the Tigers are an awful team. You know, it's funny because, you, you know, they get the chance to boo the Astros and they had a chance to boo A.J. Hinch. I think by A.J. Hinch coaching and being the manager of the Tigers, that, that's what, what is that? That's that's enough for him. I mean, that that's his punishment. You know, I mean, hey, here's your here's your double A team. I've never heard of any of these guys on this team. And and they they were just awful, just awful well, baseball. I think it's the baseball gods giving Hinch his penance and having to manage this awful Tigers team right now. They do have a lot of prospects. Uh, we saw during the Yankee telecast the three of their pitchers are in the top thirty for Baseball America for for starters. So. We'll see how it all pans out for the Tigers in the future. But right now, as Nelly said, they are terrible. They're the second worst ERA in the league at 504 behind the Braves at 506. The Atlanta Braves have the worst ERA in the major leagues. Second most earned runs given up, 
136 to the Cubs, 137. And their offense has struck out 305 times. That is the most times in Major League Baseball. That's that's tied with the Texas Rangers. And here, Nelly, I'll give you this. And, and this is just a piggyback on what you were saying about the Tigers being bad. And and don't get us wrong. We're not sitting here as doom and gloomers saying, oh, well, the Yankees, you know, they, they're still not there yet. And they did what they were supposed to do. That's what we're saying. They did what they were supposed to do against teams that shouldn't even be in the same stadium as this Yankee lineup and what they have in the bullpen. But the Tigers had 93 at-bats, Jeff. 93 at-bats. 43 strikeouts. If you're a Tiger fan sitting at home, how, how is that fun? It can't be. You know, it's... And you're right. I mean, the Yankees are supposed to beat these teams, and, and they did. And that's what – whether it propels them, we'll see. You know, they're going to play an Astros team. Maybe they have a chip on their shoulder. You hope they have a chip on their shoulder. And they go out and they they sweep them as well or win two out of three. I mean, that's – or what is it? Yeah, two out of three. So that's what has to happen. You know, you want to beat teams, and then it propels you. And maybe it does. You know, Judge had a good day on Saturday. I had a good day on Friday. You know, Stanton continues to hit. You know, LeMay, who got, had a good day on Saturday, didn't have too good of a day on Sunday. But, you know, you look at the pitching, and Kluber was outstanding. I mean, he this two starts in a row that he really used his changeup, and that was an outstanding pitch for him. Cutters in, changeups away to lefties. Had 10 punch-outs in eight innings, won eight innings. You know, that's almost like the old Kluber that you used to see against Cleveland. Tyone did a decent job giving up that one run. Guy did get out of some jams. But fortunately enough, you're playing a Tigers team as probably a double-A team, and you're supposed to be able to do that. You know, maybe you come out of with a little bit more confidence than, than you would maybe playing playing a, a decent team. But you're right. You know, Shani, they, they, they should beat these teams. You know, they, they have to beat these teams. Who knows what they're going to do against the Astros? You know, there's still a lot of question marks on this team. I, like, I really like Hagashioka behind the plate. I think he deserves to be the starter. And Sanchez deserves to sit the bench and play on a day game when there's a night game afterwards. And guys, they showed something last night where the stat was like, this is the highest amount of strikeouts in through a month, like ever. It was like a thousand more strikeouts than innings pitch or something like that. So guys early on seem to clearly be swinging for the fences. So that's been a big issue. And, you know, what could be a big reason for the Tigers' lack of success is the guy behind the plate, Wilson Ramos. There's something that correlates with him and pitchers not doing well. I've seen it in the past, and they stink. They're just terrible. They they do stink. And how about, you know, you talk about people swinging for the fences. I'm watching Aaron Hicks at bat, and this guy swings out of his rear end every single pitch. And and I'm like, does he ever just want to make contact on occasion and maybe hit it the other way or maybe, you know, shorten up his swing with two strikes? No, he wants to try to hit it as far as he can. He doesn't care if it's foul, fair. It doesn't matter. See, that's when Hicks is at his best, when he tries to hit the ball, not when he tries to crush the ball into another stratosphere. It's when he's dialed in. The best example I could give you right now, Nelly, and, and I wanted to bring up this point, too, because it really ticked me off over the weekend. Giancarlo Stanton, for the first time in his major league career, had three straight games with three hits in each of the games, and the next game comes around, and he's on the bench. I, for the life of me, can't get that. But my point with with Stanton and, and Hicks is, when Stanton is laying off that slider that is nipping the outside corner and borderline in the other batter's box, when he's laying off of that, you know that guy's dialed in. And they're going to have to come into him and he's going to rip the ball all over the field. Same thing with Hicks. He just tries to mash the ball, you know, up into Connecticut when he should just be, you know, the approach has to be different. When the approach is just 
take what the pitcher gives you, that's when the other stuff happens. Nelly, please tell me you've seen that throughout your career. Guys who stay within themselves, you hear that all the time in baseball, stay within yourself, take the ball the other way, good things will happen. And it seems like when you're swinging from your rear end, nothing good happens. No, and the thing of it is, is that when they're constantly being pitched away and the whole Detroit series you're watching and Stanton never saw a ball inside very rarely. So when you're constantly throwing away and you're saying, oh, he's laying off the slider, it looks good. You know, he's laying off the slider because he sees it a lot better because everything's away, away, away. Now, he wouldn't lay off it if anybody threw a fastball inside and made him aware of that pitch inside. Then he's going to wind up swinging and missing. And that's with any of their righties. I mean, if, I don't need analytics to tell me how to pitch guys or what their tendencies are. You know, when we had hitters meetings, fastballs in, sliders away. I mean, that's all you needed to know. And, you know, okay, are they first pitch hit, hitters? Do they, they, they look for the first pitch? Fastball, do, you know, how are they when runners are in scoring position? They're very aggressive. You know, Don Mattingly, this is how good he was. We had, when there's nobody on base, he's very selective. When there was guys on base, especially RBI situations, this guy was aggressive. You treat him like it was 0-2 because he wants to knock the run in all the time. And he all he does is look for first pitch fastball, and he wants to drive it somewhere. And, you know, that was the, that was the scouting reports on most guys. And, and now it's all analytics and, okay, this is the way I have to throw. Okay, sliders away, this count, that count. You know, they don't see pitches inside. So when they're not being thrown inside, then they're a little bit more comfortable and they can be more selective. You know, I wish Aaron Hicks would watch Aaron Judge. You know, Aaron Judge, I watched him on Saturday, and he hit a hanging curveball that, you know, broke open the game, and and I think he had a couple RBIs, and he wound up hitting in a gap for a double. You know, he probably could have smoked that ball in the stands, but he did stay with him in, in himself. I mean, you, this is a guy that when he is healthy and he doesn't want to stay out of the game with his lower body stiffness, he hits 290. He can hit 40 home runs, 50 home runs, and still hit you 300. That's a complete player. I mean, now he doesn't play every single day, and you might not see 140 games out of him. I like him as a player because he hits for average. You don't find that very often anymore. Please call your doctor if the stiffness persists. Sorry. Gotta, yeah. Gotta, gotta get that <laughs> yeah, you need a shot for that. But Judge, he's not doing himself any favors, Nelly, by keeping himself out of the lineup because – you know, if you're looking to make money and get a sizable contract when you become a free agent for the first time, you got to stay on the field and your numbers have to be consistent. And when, like you just said, when he's healthy and when he's out there, Aaron Judge is really good at baseball, <laughs> but he's got to be on the field to continue to prove that someone who could be making himself some money. Now, look, again, we're going to dial it back a little bit because he faced the Orioles and he faced the Tigers, but at the same time, you cannot ple- a completely poo-poo. It all comes back to poo with Nelly on the podcast. Yeah, there you go. It's all, it's all a callback to what we talked about last season. But you can't completely poo-poo what Kluber did the last two starts against the Orioles and against the Tigers. His two best starts of the season. Kyle Higashioka was behind the plate for both of them, by the way. And I'm not doing that to troll Gary Sanchez at all. I'm just bringing up a valid point, as my producer Josh Isaac says at the Yes Network all the time, facts. It it is facts. Kluber, eight shutout innings against the Tigers, got himself into and out of some trouble yesterday, uh, Sunday, in that two-hitter. But Nelly, that was a very impressive start. 
And you just hope that these last two starts for Kluber is what we're going to see going forward and especially against better competition. Well, you know, his changeup was a key to me as far as his last two starts. And, you know, if you watched him early, it was all cutter, cutter, cutter. And he really didn't have that feel for the changeup. Maybe because maybe it was the weather. Who knows? But he started throwing his cutters into lefties. And then all of a sudden he was going away with that changeup. And that changeup was nasty. You know, it had good sinking action down and away. And he got a lot of swings and misses out of it. He would throw it two, three times in a row, mix in a fastball every once in a while. But when you are when you have good feel, and that's all about a catcher just having that confidence to say, oh, you know what, you got to go to it. You know, a lot of catchers, that's why, that's why you see starters, you see relievers, especially starters. You know, when you get a catcher that you're comfortable with, sometimes they say, no, I, I want you to throw your change up. I, keep throwing it. You'll get the feel of the game. You'll get, you'll get this. I need you to throw this. We have to throw something else. A, a, a catcher that's not that great and, and, you know, okay, well, you know, this guy doesn't want to throw his change up, so we'll just go fastball cutter. And, and they wind up not staying in the game. You know, you wind up throwing the four or five innings or three innings and you're out. You know, you get a guy that has confidence behind there. Like, I got to see the changeup. I got to see. Let's go away. You're going to get the feel with this pitch. We're, this is going to be a successful pitch today. And, and that's what Higashioka does. I mean, he'll stay with a guy and say, listen, throw it. I need you to see you throw it. Jim Leyritz was the same way. Scott Bradley, who we're going to have on. These guys say, hey, you know what? I got to see this pitch. And they make you throw it and make you have confidence in that pitch. Gary Sanchez, I, I don't know if he's that way. I, I don't know if he's a guy that says, oh, you know what? I, you only have two pitches today. That's what we're going to stay with. Yeah, and I, I talked to Austin Romine when he was a Yankee by his locker countless amounts of times, and they were just baseball discussions between me and a major league catcher, and they were my favorite conversations that I've ever had in the clubhouse before. And he, he once got the, the scouting report given to him, and he just took it, looked at me, and shoved it in his locker. Because, And then he looked at me and said, this is nothing. You know, if I go out there and I find out he doesn't have one of his pitches, we have to adjust on the fly. So that goes exactly – to what you were saying, Nelly. And the other thing I have to bring up before we welcome in our guest today, since, you know, Jake piped in a little early today, we'll get him on mic once again, because I think I have a stat here that will make him very warm and fuzzy inside, Nelly. The Tigers and the Indians, two of the past Yankees' recent opponents, are 28th and 29th, respectively, in hits in the major league this season. There's 30 teams in the league. I wonder who's number 30. (laughs) Only one team is worse. And that team plays over in Queens. And that team is 500, as the Yankees are. As the the Yankees are. Despite some of the worst managing I've ever seen from Luis Rojas, (laughs) the clown. Luis Rojas starring in the Ringley Barnum Bailey Circus, which I think is defunct, but he's forming his own circus. What happened last night? I got to ask Nelly, though, what did you eat at the game? Did you also get Benny Hanna at Yankee Stadium on Saturday? I actually did not eat anything at the game. I had I did have a beer. No, I didn't eat anything. I just had a beer so I could leave my mask off, which is another thing I don't understand when you have to be either show your vaccination card or have a negative test to get into the stadium. So you have 10,800 people that are there. All of them are have tested negative or have been vaccinated and you still have to wear a mask. I refuse to wear one. So I got a beer 
and sipped on two beers the whole game. And I actually got sunburned and didn't realize I got that, sunburned. Well, that's the thing. If you're either pretending to sip or sip on something, there's nothing they can really do because you can't sip on the beer with the Mets. The Yankees, though, do enforce it more than the Mets where they have these these signs, these like yes. cardboard things like, stay mad, stay mad, and they'll come up and go through the sections. And oh, you know, yeah. I, I had to raise it when I went to the Yankee game, and I'm like, wow, they are. You know, at the Garden, they enforce it because it's inside, and you understand right. it's an indoor thing. But This is outside. outside. Yeah. I, think, I think New York is actually the only city that still wears masks outside you know they did come out and said you don't you don't have to it's a ventilation thing you don't have to really wear a mask outside but they do did you go to stands billy's where you know i saw i saw you with a friend of mine phil from college that you said hello to and you were taking pictures oh, really? with people yeah no it was it was actually the it was a bar i think it was called twins right next to billy's so it was an interesting story that billy's was run there's two there's two twins that own this uh run this place right next to billy's and they're the ones that have the music outside and their dad opened up billy's and then then all of a sudden his brother as well their uncle dad passed away from cancer all of a sudden some little rift started happening and the uncle took over and basically kicked kicked the the the, the nephews and everybody else out so now the uncle runs billy's and to piss them off they opened up this place right next door so I just hung out outside. They have a really good outside outside dining area. So it was it was a nice day, and it, it was I've never hung out at any of the bars over there. I've been to a few of them. Just uh, you know, stands did a signing. Billy's been in there before, but it was actually nice to hang out on the streets with everyone. And we talked before, guys. A guy, someone asked you to take a picture of them in the stadium. Oh yes. I had yeah, no idea couple, it was you. A young couple came up and said, "Hey, do you mind taking a picture of me?" And, and my girlfriend, I'm like, yeah, sure. And had no clue who I was. Yeah. These youngins, Shearney, they don't, yeah, they they don't know no the OGs. Clue. Yeah, they don't know the OGs. Oh, God almighty. Don't get me started. But, Nelly, we, we have to spin it back really quick. And I have to ask you this question to the Yankees coming up now. They went 8-3 and three against the Indians, the Orioles, and the Tigers. A good 11-game stretch to get them back to 500 at 14-14 14 and 14 as we tape this on their off day on Monday. But the next nine are going to be very telling. And those next nine are against the Astros, Boo. the Nationals, Boo. and the Rays. Boo. And, and the Rays on the road. And this is the first time Yankee fans are going to have a chance to boo the Houston Astros live and in living color. So that's going to be interesting to see the Astros come in. But these next nine games will be a good litmus test, as were those last 11 against teams that are pretty much at the bottom of the barrel. So these three teams that the Yankees are going to face next, what are you expecting out of the Yankees after what you just saw over this last 11 game stretch in these next nine? Well, I mean, hopefully that they, they gain some confidence and say, okay, yeah, we're supposed to beat the teams that we're supposed to beat. The Rays is going to, the Rays are going to be the series that is going to be the most watched because they're going to say, okay, how do you, they've already been beat up last year by them. They've been beat up this year so far by them. And, and the Rays have such confidence that, you know what, we own the Yankees now. You need to turn the table. Let's see if they can turn the table. The Nationals are still not a great team. They may get Scherzer. Scherzer pitched yesterday against a double-A Marlins team. If you, I don't know if you saw that lineup. I saw that lineup, and I was like, you got to be kidding me. I mean, these might be A-ball players that they don't even belong in the big leagues. And they may get them on Friday, I'm not sure. everybody. Yes, and they want to expand, <laughs> and you have 12 guys in the starting lineup on Oof. Sunday hitting under 200. Good luck with Yikes. that. Yikes. Yikes. Okay, uh, it's time for us to wrap up our segment here. And uh, when we come back, we will welcome in Scott Bradley, former catcher in the major leagues, a former Mariner and Yankee, just like my co-host, Jeff Nelson.
Joining us now, the Princeton Tigers head baseball coach, Scott Bradley. He's coached Princeton since 1998. That's 23 years since the dynasty uh, was in effect with the New York Yankees. And he spent two seasons with the Bombers, 84 and 85. He's with the White Sox and also the Mariners, Nelly's, one of Nelly's former teams as well. Coach, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Nah, it's my pleasure. Anytime Nelly needs something, I'm available. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Scotty, I, I got to start with this. You you are now officially my spirit animal, and it's based on your last two tweets. And I got to read, uh, are we now using data and analytics to justify bad performances? We'll start with this one. If I went 0 for 5 with two strikeouts and left four on base and we lost the game, it would not make me feel any better just because I had two quality at bats and hit one ball with 106 exit velocity. 0 for 5 is 0 for 5, and a loss is a loss. It sounds like you could be the third wheel on this podcast, my friend. You know what? It's just such an interesting time in baseball. And, you know, we're sort of in that uh, let's make everybody feel good era from little league up to the big leagues. You know, we just have to justify everything. I've been on the Twitter for about six weeks now. Princeton asked me to have a little bit more of a social media presence. So I kind of give my thoughts each day. And this is sort of the direction that it's gone. But the data, the analytics, there's value to it. There really is. But it, it just gets used right now for, I think, far too many explanations instead of, hey, I had a bad day today. We'll come back and get them tomorrow. As an analyst, you know, I, I do games with the Marlins. And it's so funny. I mean, even I was at the game. I was at the Yankee game on Saturday. And even up on the scoreboard, right next to the pitcher's velocity, it has the exit velocity. And also, they's coming up. This is a new stat. Maybe it's not a new stat. It's barreled balls. You know, this is this this guy has the most barreled balls in in baseball. And he's barreled up the baseball. I'm like, okay, is it a base hit or is it an out? Do he's I hitting really 150. Care? He's hitting 150, but he's leading. He's leading the league in barreled up ball, baseballs. I mean, what is this? It's like participation trophies. It's like, I mean, we're we're. I don't understand where baseball is going. I, I really don't. And I tweeted out on Saturday the starting lineup between the Yankees and the Tigers. The Tigers are a double A team by far. They had 12 guys, six on each, that were hitting under 200. And this is at the end of April. You would never even sniff the big leagues if you hit under 200 in about 20 years ago. I uh, know you wouldn't. And, and I'll tell you one thing, as a hitter, back in our day, as you know, Nelly, when I walk, when you would walk up to the plate, the only thing up on the scoreboard was your batting average. You were embarrassed if you walked up there and you were on the on the interstate and you were under and you were under 200. It was like, man, I better get some hits quickly because I need to I, I need to at least see a two next to that in that in that first digit. It's crazy. You remember? You remember out in Seattle? It's funny. They had a place. That, what was the bar called? Or the because Dave Valley? Yeah, Dave Valley was was the main catcher in Seattle, and Scotty was the backup when I was out there. And they had they would have drink specials with Dave Valley's average because he was hitting under two hundred at a time, <laughs> and it, it was embarrassing. I mean, he didn't like it, and he, I mean, he strived and worked his ass yeah. off to you know, to get over that. But that's what that's that was the day back then. Now it's it's you know, I guess it's accepted. It's really it's really a shame. You know, it is. And, and you know, you, you get to see Donnie, you know, Manly every day. And, and Donnie's one of the best teammates I ever had. And I remember talking to Donnie about hitting all the time. And he always told me that when he hit the ball to left field, he wanted to serve it to left field. He wasn't trying to hit it hard. He wasn't trying to have crazy exit velocity. He was trying to hit a line drive over the shortstop set. He said he wanted to hit just enough long fly balls to left field so he could hit 10 in front of him. You know, the idea of extra velocity, maybe on the pull side, every once in a while it's a cool thing. But as a hitter, you're not striving for that. You're trying to hit a line drive somewhere. And that's the crazy thing, even as we take it one more step into the launch angle. 
a round ball around that, there's no way I can go up and try to achieve a certain launch angle. I know that if I hit a line drive, the launch angle is going to be in the appropriate range. It's range. If I hit line drives, that's what our generation tried to do. We tried to hit line drives. That's the proper launch angle you're looking for. It's not like you can go up and say, well, I need to get a 34-degree launch angle on every swing that I take. It's impossible to do that. Again, we're trying to hit line drives is what we've always done in this game. Nelly, let me spin this to you because this is what you were talking about in our last segment, and that was your pitching meetings when you played fastball in, slider away. That's basically what Scott just told us there, is it not? Oh, it is. And, and, you know, you look at, you're saying, oh, you know, Stanton did such a great job of laying off the slider away. Well, you can, you know, Scotty's a hitter. I mean, if you're constantly getting pitched one way and it's always a way, a way, a way, you know, now all of a sudden pitchers have it in their mind. I don't know if it's analytics or whatever. Oh, I don't want to get beat inside. They're afraid to come inside. Well, coming inside sets, we have CC Sabathia in on our podcast, and he said the same thing. He says, I have to, okay, if somebody's hitting a, a buck 15 off of a slider, I just can't c- continue to throw him sliders. I got to try to set that pitch up, and that pitch up, setting that pitch up is something inside to get him off that slider. Well, you don't see that very often anymore, or hardly ever. That's why you see a Stanton, okay, I'm going to lay off a slider away. Or you see Judge not swinging at the slider away. He doesn't see anything inside. They're never, they're never made to feel uncomfortable. We had to do that back then. For me, if I, if I constantly you know, went away, nobody would ever swing at my slider. I don't care how good it was. Nobody would ever swing at it. You know, my whole philosophy, Nelly, as a, as a catcher with all that, you know, my whole idea was you had to speed hit, you had to know when to speed a hit up and when to slow them down. The breaking ball is less effective the more you throw it, as you just said. I have to throw enough fastballs to make the hitter's decision-making process speed up. And that comes from throwing fastballs. It comes from throwing fastballs in and make them aware, boy, I better get the head of the bat out. As soon as you do that, they're going to swing at the slider in the dirt. But if you just throw them all the breaking balls out over the plate because the, the data says, well, he doesn't hit the breaking ball very well, and you don't speed up his decision-making with the fastball, they're going to they're gonna lay off the bat breaking ball. And trust me, the breaking ball that straight stays in the strike zone turns into a home run because the strong hitters, they're going to get the barrel of the bat to an 84-mile-an-hour pitch as opposed to a 98-mile-an-hour pitch. I was going to transition into the current Yankees because Coach Mike Ford at Princeton, and Mike Ford is now a big part of the Yankees, and I was curious what the experience coaching Mike was like, and I guess you were not surprised to see uh, the success he's had and now in the big leagues with the Yanks. You know, no, we're so proud of all our guys, and, you know, we had one stretch. We've had, in my years, you know, you look at a school like Princeton, of course, you know, you're thinking of, you know, the the Princeton academic side of things. We've had eight guys get to the big leagues in, in, in my years. We currently have three major league general managers, Chris Young with the Rangers, Mike Hazen with the Diamondbacks, and Mike Turnoff with, with, with the Indians. We currently have Dave Hale, who pitched some with the Yankees, who's now with the Phillies, and Mike Ford. The thing that really impressed me, Mike, and I watched Mike, the local kid, so I've watched Mike since he's about 13 or 14 years old. He's always had a really good feel of the strike zone. He's always had a real good command of, of, of strikes. He always used the whole field. And when I watch Mike right now, I see somebody who's trying to hit the ball in the seat. 
and I see somebody who's geared up a little bit. He's not as patient as he was when he first came up, you know, a couple of years ago. Like all hitters, I think he's pressing a little bit, knowing that, hey, I better I better produce, and I better produce now. I think if they can get Mike some consistent at-bats, and if Mike can sort of settle in and go back to his strength, and that's using the whole field. You know, he hit an opposite field home run the other day, but again, go back, take pitches, slow the game down a little bit. He's just speeding everything up right now, but he's a phenomenal kid. I think that at any point if somebody gives them 300 or 350 at-bats, you're going to see 20 home runs. You're going to see a 270 to 280 batting average and, and an on-base percentage of upper threes, maybe even close to four. I think he has that type of ability as a hitter. Well, he was he was the pitching and hitting Ivy League player of the year one year, wasn't he? He was. In fact, they have a the, the NCAA awards what they call the John Oldward. It goes to the best two-way player in college baseball. Michael Lorenzen, who has actually done some two-way stuff with the, with the Cincinnati Reds, he won the award and Mike was second. Mike hit 384 or so whatever with some home runs and then on the mound for us, you know, he was um, uh, I think at an ERA of under one and was like 5-0 and or 6-0 and or something like that in our thing but, you know, Mike's biggest tool on the mound was his competitiveness. He was 88 to 92, a straight forcing fastball. The old uh, Little League roundhouse slow curveball but, you know, Mike could throw any pitch for a strike, and he competed his tail off. He was like, we had a number of games when Mike was with us where he was like Kelly Leak in Bad News Bears, <laughs> where he did he did everything. And he did like a, he did a home run in the in the top of the ninth inning, and then he would go out and be, he would be his own closer, and he'd have his best inning, you know, in the bottom of ninth to close out, you know, to close out his win. He's a great kid, a tough kid, and I just hope he. The Yanks give him a chance to settle in just a little bit and get him some more at-bats because he'll get himself going, no doubt. You know, Scotty, you mentioned competitiveness, and, and i am be interesting to see how I know, like you mentioned, that analytics, there's always a place for it, and, and a lot of it is a good tool. Uh, my opinion, I think it's overused. Uh, what do you, How do you use that in, in your program? And as far as competitiveness, you think analytics, you know, because it almost seems robotic to me that a lot of players go up there and they're really thinking a whole bunch. And I'm talking to hitting coach Marcus Timms, the hitting coach for the Yankees. You know, he he tries to feel out the players of how much information they can actually take in. And some of them, he doesn't give them a whole lot because he knows they can't retain that. Do you think analytics kind of take that competitive nature away because everybody's thinking they're not as, as aggressive on certain things, even pitching and, and, and hitting in, in, in both in, instances? It does. And I love Marcus. I think Marcus does a great job and he is dead on when he sits back and tries to figure out because not everybody's the same. Some guys don't want all the information. Some guys want more and you have to know how to, how to filter it out. But I, I think that a lot of it, hitters don't use it as much as as much as they think. I have a friend of mine who's in the Red Sox organization and uh, he's a minor league man. He was a minor league manager and two years ago they they brought all the minor league managers up to Boston for like a last couple series or whatever and he said J.D. Martinez was unbelievable that J.D. Martinez ran the hitters meet and he J.D. Martinez would take all the information and he would dummy it down and he would have all the hitters there to go hey this guy's spin rate is this it means it's got some hop to it. We got to make we get to the top half of the baseball. He told me that it was amazing the way he broke down all the information and put it in a baseball perspective for all the hitters, all the young hitters, what to look for. Hey, this is a guy we got to get early in the count, right? We don't want to let him get to that out pitch. You know, this is a guy that we need to work the count a little bit. But I think we're starting to see some of that, Nelly. And you're seeing the games all the time. 
think bullpens are so strong now, and the arms coming out of the bullpens are so good. It's not like teams have a philosophy anymore that they're going to really work the count and try to get starters out of the game because once the starters come out, it doesn't get any easier. Scotty, I got one for you, and and it's one Nellie and I have been talking about for the past couple of weeks, and it's something that we can't figure out. And I just want to get your thoughts on Gary Sanchez and maybe what you think as a former catcher, what you think has been uh, the issue with him the past couple of seasons, especially this season. You know, the first couple of games, he has two home runs, and then the back goes silent again, and here we are with the debate whether or not Higashioka should be back there as the starter instead of Sanchez. So I just wanted to get your thoughts on the Yankees' backstop. You know, Sanchez is definitely – I had a chance to watch him a lot, Trenton, you know, when he was when he was on his way up. And, you know, he's one of these hitters that – He's, you know, offensively anyway, he's, he's streaky. And to me, though, the only thing that you can do is if you want to get to those hot streaks, you have to let them go through the cold streaks. You know, uh, Nelly can tell you when, when for years, you know, when he was a young player, Jay Buhner was one of those guys until he really got established and became one of the best players in baseball. And we used to say that, you know, we need to play 500 until Jay gets hot. And then Jay's going to hit eight home runs in a week and we're going to win seven. We're going to win seven straight games. But for a young hitter, somebody trying to still establish themselves like a Sanchez, if you start trying to play that game where you only try to play him when you think he's going to be hot, it's hard for those hot streaks to come. I think the pressure that's been put on him to really succeed defensively and the scrutiny that he's been under defensively, I think has impacted what he's done uh, with, with the bat. I, I think it's taken a little focus off, you know, just going up and, and producing and hitting numbers. You know, you now have, you know, Garrett Cole was pretty upfront about he wanted he goes here to catch, you know, when he was pitching. So I think it's difficult if, you're, if he's only going to be a part-time guy. I don't think you're going to. I don't think you're going to see the offensive numbers, and that's where the Yankees just have to make a decision whether they think he can be good enough defensively. You know, and I'm sure you guys have talked about that too. And as a former catcher, I'm not sure what I think about the way that the catching position is being taught now with all this one knee stuff, all the moving around, the the moving parts. I tweeted something the other day. That the first time I ever caught Tom Seaver in a spring training game, he told me literally get dead center on the plate um, and put a target right in the middle of the plate. Um, I want to see symmetry. And I see so many of these catchers now that are moving in the middle of the pitcher's line. I mean, Nelly as a pitcher, if the guy gave you a target and then started jumping up and down to get into different positions, would, would that would that affect you? Yeah, because you, you're, you're looking, I mean, you're always taught to, okay, watch the glove, throw at the glove. And, and when you see a catcher moving as much as they do, and I think they take a lot of strikes away. I watch it all the time. And I was going to ask you, why are they moving so much? And what's the deal with the one knee now? You see it around the league that, that these catchers are, are taught with one knee on the ground and one knee up. You don't see them squaring up very often anymore like they used to. No, and the thing, I mean, there's a place for the one-knee stuff. You know, certain guys, if their flexibility is not as good, nobody on base. But you see a lot of the one-knee stuff. Even now, I don't understand with guys on base with, uh, maybe the, you know, people don't run as much, so they figure they don't have to run. And then you see guys literally starting with their glove on the ground, and they're taught to catch everything with their glove moving towards the zone. And how they present, well, we're a year or two away from probably going to an automated strike zone at some point. The emphasis is made on presentation. It's not going to matter. I was taught, and my um, and this wasn't just from pitching coaches, umpires, literally the Steve Palermo's and these guys who are great umpires, literally say, Scotty, stay as still as possible. Stop moving around so much. Give me a really good look. Stay still. There's none of that anymore. These guys are moving. These guys are moving all over the place. And being down on a knee, trying to block balls with winning run on third base, and I don't know. I don't understand it. And Nelly, I think it's actually one of these situations where guys spend so much time breaking things down on video and teaching things that probably don't need to be taught 
and spending a lot of time on things. You know, Tony Pena caught on one knee when there was nobody on base, and he could get really low. But he got down in that one knee position very early, and he was very still. He guys now that are going to their knee while the pitcher is in his delivery. I got it. You mentioned it. Well, two parts. One, I got to know, how is he catching Tom Seaver? You got him at the end of his career with the White Sox. Would love to hear about catching him. And then also... Catching Randy Johnson's no-hitter must have been an absolute thrill. It is. We'll start with Seaver first. I, I grew up in northern New Jersey. I was a Yankee fan, but in 69, 72, and that's, you know, everybody had a little bit of a, a place in their heart for, for what, the Mets, you know, what the Mets were doing. You know, watching Tom Seaver, and as a young baseball fan growing up, I knew exactly, you know, Tom Terrific, you know, and the, the dirty knee and how he pitched. And, you know, the other thing is Tom always talked a lot about credited his time in the Marine Corps for really making him grow up. And my, my dad was a, was a, a, a Marine at the Chosen Reservoir. So when I joined the White Sox and I mentioned to Tom about my dad, he had like a, all he wanted to do was sit and talk to me all the time. He wanted to talk to my about my dad. He wanted to ask, you know, every time my dad was in town, he wanted to sit down and talk to my dad about the experience. And he also sat down and talked to me about baseball and talked to me about catching and pitching. And he wasn't the Tom Seaver at that point. He just tried to make it move. He would cut it a little bit. He would think a little bit, but I thought he was just one of the greatest of all time, you know, with, with what he did. Moving on to Randy Johnson, I caught a young version of Randy Johnson. Yes, I caught his no-hitter, and I think two starts later, I caught him, and he walked 10 and 3 in the third. Um, <laughs> so, I spent a lot of time chasing balls to the backstop, but he was so talented, and, and, a, and, a, and a laugh in that it's a real power feeling being behind the plate as a catcher because what you call it really didn't matter. There were certain hitters that walked up. I mean, that way will tell you, there were certain hitters that when they go up, you know you're going to get them out. But with Randy, there were certain hitters that came up that you knew they could not even put a ball into play. They, they were intimidated. They didn't see the ball the right way. And you could just throw anything you wanted, and you knew that it was, if Randy two strikes, it was going to be a, be a strikeout. The thing that we found in his, in his no-hitter, maybe a start before that was, he had a tendency to really overthrow his fastball, and he would get out of his rhythm. And we found that the best way to get him back into his rhythm was to have him throw his breaking ball. And his breaking ball became a command pitch. So anytime he threw two fastballs, Mr. Snappy, way up, way up and away, he would throw that breaking ball. And he never, and, and now you saw him, he never overthrew the breaking ball. His balance, his and his no-hitter, every time he threw a couple of fastballs for a ball, we'd throw a fighter for a strike. And we realized at that point, and he really balanced out his pitches, and the Tigers weren't really sure what he was what he was throwing. Uh, and that made him, they started swinging, because he threw his breaking ball for strikes. That made they started swinging at, at the high fastballs. And the last pitch of the game may have been the highest pitch that anybody, I think, has ever swung at in a, in a Major League Baseball game before. Mike Keith caught it, and I almost had to jump to catch it. There's a, there's a poster out there, really, not that I'm an English major, but I did have to read The Adventures of Gulliver's Travels when I was a, when I was a kid. <laughs> and um, there's a poster where all of us little Venusians are grabbing Randy around the waist, and he's like three feet tall as in all of us with his arm with his arms up in the air, and we're sort of like grabbing him. I learned a lot from Randy. I mean, it was funny. You know, remember in '92, everybody you just mentioned he walked in. Everybody was all over him. The media would get all over him about walking guys, and you kind of felt bad for hitters because if he did get behind them, three oh three. One, he's like, okay, I'm not wasting any pitches to get back into the count, and he would wind up drilling them. He goes, okay, you're gonna you're gonna get on me about my walks. I'll just hit guys. I don't care. You know what's funny about that? There were a few guys in the league that were friends of mine that I liked. When Randy, when it was a three zero count and it was facing Randy, I tell him, hey, heads up. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly. <laughs> that's exactly 
exactly what Randy would do. He's like, oh, man, I can't throw three straight strikes. I might as well just throw it. So when friends of mine would come up, I'd say, hey, back off a little bit because this one may be in your direction. But uh, And you, I don't know if you were there when Nolan Ryan grabbed him at one point and sat him down yeah. in a bullpen session. And Nolan Ryan told him, hey, Randy, don't worry about the walks. You're always going to walk people because guys aren't just going to put your ball in play. They're going to foul them off and they're going to swing and miss, which means that you're going to have to throw more pitches. So you're always going to walk guys. Don't worry about them. And the walks didn't start to disappear. And Randy became an amazing command guy. You know, later in his career and became the Hall of Fame, you know, maybe along with Kofax, maybe the arguably one of the two best left-handers of all time. Just really fun to watch his progression. And, and you know, Nelly, you said it, if you took the time to get to know Randy, you know, he's a little, people, he's he a little, hard. you know, people yeah, are a little standoffish. But once you got to know him, he really liked to talk to the young pitchers. He really liked to talk pitching. He talked scouting reports. And I think early in his career, that bothered him because everybody said, you're so big, just throw hard. And so I started with Randy. You know, he couldn't execute at that time. But we would go over a scouting report before every game just because it made him feel like he was everybody else and not one of these guys that was told, hey, just throw the ball down the middle. Yeah, he was one of my best friends. He was good. He was a good guy. I assume Scott didn't have that watch out, heads up feeling in the brief time he caught you, Nelly, right? In the uh, the one season. (laughs) (laughs) No, that was was watch out every single pitch because I didn't know where it was going. Well, here's a, here's a good Nelly story. Nelly came over and uh, joined us. Uh, he got traded over Rule 5 or whatever. I forget what it was, Nelly. But, you know, we had just a so-so type team. And I'm catching in spring training. And I'm catching all our guys. And I always put myself in a hitter's frame of mind. And I'm catching Nelly in spring training and stuff. And then I'm hearing sort of rum- some rumbling that, you know what, he's not going to make. I'm, I'm going to our pitching coach team. Seriously? I don't want to hit off this guy. How can this guy not How can this guy not make our team out of spring training? <laughs> I said, I'll, I'll, take, I'll take him on the mound any day right you know. He, going to get people out. We're going to send him down? I think that was a pretty good trade for the Yanks, picking, yeah, uh, picking you guys up. So Ended up being a good one for everybody. Princeton Tigers baseball head coach, Scott Bradley. You can follow him on Twitter, at CoachBradley9. Uh, from one Jersey kid to another Jersey kid, I, I think we just scratched the surface here with you, Scotty, and we love to have you back on to talk more baseball. This was a lot of fun. Thanks a lot, man. These are a lot of fun, and like I said, you guys have my number. And it doesn't take, Nelly will tell you from our fantasy camps and stuff like that, it doesn't take much to twist my arm to get me talking baseball. Anytime you guys want me on, give me a day's notice, and I'm there. My spirit animal, Scotty Bradley. Thank you, sir. You got it, guys. Thanks. That says goodnight to episode 49, the Ron Guidry Gator Louisiana Lightning edition of the Pinstripe Pod, our Yankees podcast from the New York Post. Thanks to Jake Brown and Brian Mungia hearing it from the crowd. We're producing the show. Give Pinstripe Pod a five-star rating and write in a nice review on Apple Podcasts. We appreciate the support. For Jeff Nelson, I'm Chris Sheeran. We return on Thursday following the Yankees' three-game set against the Astros. Enjoy the games, and as always, thanks for listening.